Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20. We've been journeying now together. And as you're turning there, I want to make a couple of announcements uh, about this week. And if you've been around for any length of time at Grace Fellowship, you know these events are coming. But you might be new, so I want to remind you. We have this week um, what's called a Monday Thursday service. Not Monday Thursday. Okay, that would be confusing. It's Monday. It's from the Latin, and it means the command. And what we do in that service is we join together and we look at the, at the upper room discourse of our Lord. The night that he is betrayed, he preaches and teaches to his men about the command to love one another as he has loved them. We take the, the communion supper together on Thursday night, right here, 6 o'clock. That's when the service will begin. Then we have the Good Friday service. If you know, we join together with other local churches here to celebrate the crucifixion. I know that sounds very strange to some ears, but we celebrate the crucifixion and the work of our Lord on the day of his death. And then next Lord's Day, we celebrate in a very specific way uh, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is what is known in the Christian calendar as Holy Week. It begins today, Palm Sunday, as Aaron referenced earlier. And as we read in our opening passage this morning, the fulfillment of the prophecy that Jesus Christ, God with us, would ride into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. And he would be received by his people for a short time, only to be rejected by them in the end. And so that is Palm, this Palm Sunday today, and we celebrate that. One of the best ways we can celebrate any of these events is to proclaim the word of the Lord. Uh, that's what we do in the Christian church is we systematically exposit, explain, expound what God has said to us in his word. And so we're doing that. You've been with us. We've been going through Acts. And so I want to read the passage before us, Acts chapter 20, verses 1 through 12. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. When he, had done, uh, when he had gone through those regions and had given much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months. And when a plot was made against him by the Jews as he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater, the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him. And of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus, and Gaius of Derby and Timothy, and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus. These went on ahead and were waiting for us at Troas. But we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. And in five days we came to them at Troas, where we stayed for seven days. On the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered. And a young man named Eutychus, sitting at the window, sank into a deep sleep as Paul talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms said, Do not be alarmed, for his life is in him. And when Paul had gone up and broken bread and eaten, he conversed with them a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. We come to the point in our journey through Acts that the Apostle Paul is headed back to Jerusalem. He's not been in Jerusalem for quite some time. His missionary work has kept him away from the people of Jerusalem. And I'm sure that he is eager to re return and comfort the mother church during what has been a very difficult time. This section of Acts parallels 2 Corinthians chapter 1 through 9. Paul has been in Corinth for at least two years, and then he was in Ephesus for about three years. And now he's touring through the churches, saying his farewells and collecting the offering for Jerusalem. And collecting the fruit of his Gentile ministry. So let's look at this passage together, beginning in verse 1. First, we see God's providence working in the details of Paul's journey. 
Paul had a pastoral heart. If you look at the first section here, the first uh, six verses, what you find is an extended amount of talk about Paul the pastor. We often think of Paul as a missionary, and he was that, wasn't he? His desire, his deepest desire was to preach the gospel where the gospel had not been preached. But right here in verse 1, what we see is that as he's preparing to go to Macedonia, he's compelled to gather all the believers together and to speak a farewell to them. If this is anything like the farewell that we're going to see later in chapter 20 to the, uh, the elders at Ephesus, then he's not only saying goodbye to them, but it's kind of a southern goodbye. You know about southern goodbyes? My kids know all about southern goodbyes. You first say in the sitting room, as you're going to the door, the living room, you say, goodbye, we'll see you later. Everyone hugs. The children are sent to the car. The adults then go and stand on the porch. And they talk a while. And the kids wait impatiently. Now they're punching one another in the seats and they're being rebuked by the elders as they continue to talk. Then they move the fellowship from the porch to the front yard where they continue to talk about the next time they're going to get together. And then dad, being the patriarch of the family, rounds mother in because she's been holding him up, so he tells everyone, puts his car up, his, tr his, his foot up into the truck, one foot, one foot still planted. Every southern child knows we're not leaving yet. We're still talking. We're still conversing. Paul was fond. I always have said, you know, he uses the word y'all a lot. What we would call y'all, the inclusive. He does that. Like we talk down here in the South, y'all. He also had long goodbye talks. He was a southern man. <laughs> he was saying goodbye. He was saying farewell. He was leaving them instructions in this passage, I'm sure. He's labored in Ephesus to see the gospel go forward. He's seen people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And he has seen the planting of a church in this great city. All of this was done in the face of opposition. And not the least of which is the riot that he's just endured in Acts 19. You know, the one where had he gone in the middle of it, it would have got a lot worse. But they just drug his companions in the middle. You know, how would you like to be that? Paul's bodyguard. You get drug into the fight, Paul leaves. They had a real uprising. The gospel has caused conflict, as David showed us. And Paul is leaving this city, in his mind, maybe for the last time. But he's not deterred. As he's faced this opposition, he's not deterred from speaking a fond goodbye to them. He loves these people. He wants them to be encouraged even as he leaves them. This is an aspect of Paul we don't always emphasize because we tend to focus on his pioneering spirit and the missions that he was all about. But even in his desire to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth, he cared for the sheep in the local church. He was a man with a pastor's heart. And he, we should share his love for sheep. We need to work hard to become encouragers of our fellow Christians. You say, where is this pastor's heart? Well, after the uproar, you notice... After that, he encouraged them, and he spoke a farewell to them. Not to forget now that there's an uproar that's just happened. They've just had a riot because they want to kill him. And he cares enough for them to stop leaving and love them, speak kind words to them, encourage them in their faith. He not only does it there, but notice in verse 2 that he goes throughout the region to all the churches encouraging the brothers. So he's already planted these churches. If he was only about pioneer mission, if, he, if we had this segmenting like sometimes we do in the church now where we say, well, these people are pioneers and they're missionaries, they're not pastors. And these people are pastors, they're not missionaries. Paul doesn't know anything about that. Paul knows as a pioneer missionary and God plants a church, I love that church. And I care about them enough to share my life with them as long as God leaves me there. And when I leave, I leave them with encouragement to continue to walk. In the faith, he has a heart for the people that God has saved. People are not numbers, in other words. People are not mere numbers. 
And they're not just trophies that Paul can put in his trophy case and say, boy, we can check Ephesus off. We got those people saved. They're sheep. And he as a shepherd wants to love them and nurture them and encourage them in grace fellowship. We should share his heart for the people that are right here at Grace Fellowship. So he did this, and then he traveled through the churches, collecting the offering of, to Jerusalem and encouraging the believers. This is verses 2 through 3. Luke records Paul's movements as he journeyed west to east among the churches that he'd already planted in the region. And he ended up in Corinth for three months, in Greece for three months. Now, I want to say something about that. Is since he left Corinth, there's been a problem. And this problem includes a problem and a, and, a, and a problem that the church has with Paul. There's been people that have come in behind him and they've disrupted the church and they've talked about Paul's not really an apostle. They've called him into question. And we know this because if you read 1 Corinthians, then you read 2 Corinthians, you understand that probably there's a letter that we don't have in the scriptures right here. You know, Paul wrote a lot of letters in his time. The Spirit gathered the letters that were universal and were kept and preserved for all time, for all people everywhere. But there are other letters he wrote, and apparently he wrote a letter that was not so good. I mean, it was addressing issues that had to be addressed, but there was a real conflict between the church at Corinth and Paul. And so, as he's traveling and he's preparing to go back to Corinth, we find him here. Uh, before he arrives at Corinth, for those three months, he wrote them a letter calling on them to be prepared for his coming. That he would not have to withstand them with tears, but rather he'd be able to receive them with great joy. He wanted to celebrate their obedience to Christ. And like a father to his children, he wants them to bring joy to his heart through their obedience. I mean, the Corinthian church, he says, you are my pastoral papers of affirmation. You people are my epistles written on my heart. I don't need some lambskin to roll out and say, look at my credentials. You are my credentials. And when I come to you, I want to celebrate that with you. So you got to deal with some church discipline issues because if you don't deal with them when I get there, I'll deal with them. That's the kind of talk that was going on. And so he, he shows up for those three months, and thankfully they did deal, we believe, with those issues. And he arrived, and he finds that he was able to visit them and encourage them face to face. He had a desire to travel through the churches, which he's already planted, Notice, he did it to encourage them. Part of the encouragement is face to face. Now, he goes to Corinth. He stays three months, and it's during this time he wrote the epistle, we believe, to the Roman church. That great epistle. So he's active during that time as he's encouraging them and laboring with them for three months. But what I want us to see from this verse is the need that we have as Christians for face to face encouragement. We live in a day, in an age, where electronics and digital communication have run roughshod over our population. And we're not going to get into all of that, the good and the bad and the ugly. There's plenty to talk about. Other people can do that, or we might do it at another time. But what I do want to say, listen to me, is that one of the most instrumental and loving things you will ever do is to spend time with your Christian brothers and sisters face to face. Face to face. We will never know the powerful impact that it has on others' lives or our own life when we have fellowship together in the same place at the same time. It, listen, it, took, it takes time in a busy schedule for us to sit down, share a meal, encourage one another, visit with people, read the word with them, Pray with them, encourage them, rebuke them. Yeah, if you're going to rebuke somebody, you probably ought to spend a lot of time with them. The reality is life is hard, church. Is it not? Life is hard. But life is unbearable. It's unbearable when we don't have church family. And Christian community. We often say this, and sometimes in a flippant way, and I don't think we should. I don't know how anybody survives without the church. 
That's a right sentiment. Paul placed a high value on face-to-face encouragement. He wanted to, listen, how much did he value it? He took the painstaking time and energy to go back through these churches. That's not like he got on a jet and flew to one place and then the next place and the next place. That'd be arduous enough. He walked, he rode, he labored to get to the people so he could look them in the face. I'm sure there were plenty of people saying, just write more letters, Paul. It'll, it, we send them by other messengers, and Paul did some of that. But he preferred to walk into your house and look at you. And we should too. Now, in the next three verses, what we get here is a list of the traveling companions of Paul. And this is significant. I know we often look at these lists and we read right past them like, well, what does that got to do with me? I mean, all these weird names. Who would ever name their child Gaius? I mean, what kind of people are these? Well, they're our Christian brothers. And they do have strange names, and they think Bob and, and John are, well, not John, but Bob and William and Carlton. Those are weird names probably to them. These are Hellenistic people. They are named with Greek names. And here's what we need to see in these three verses. is not just a list of names, but representatives of the fruit of Paul's Gentile labor. Remember what letter, where we are, we're in church history. What happened in Acts 15? Paul had started working among the Gentiles and he had been accused of what? Setting aside the way and going some newfangled way. And he and Barnabas went back to the council at Jerusalem, and they said, this is the gospel we preach. And they said the good gospel was the true gospel. Now, Paul is headed back years later to Jerusalem to deliver an offering to them. And what does he do but gather representatives from each of those congregations which he had planted to go with him? Can you imagine the joy of Paul coming to Jerusalem with some from the congregations that scattered across Greece and Asia Minor where he's been laboring to come back to that same city, to that same church, and those same apostles, the ones still there, and the elders of the church of Jerusalem and say, you guys approved the gospel that I preached, and this is the fruit of our labor together. These men represent whole congregations that have come to know our Lord. It's no longer some small Jewish schism, this way of Christ, but it has expanded even to the darkest places of the earth, into the Gentile context. Can you imagine the joy he had as he goes across? Not just to take money to them. That was important. They were starving to death in Jerusalem, but to take fruit with him and say, look what God has done. God is providentially working to bring all the people of God to himself from all the tribes of all the earth. And Paul is pleased to bring a picture of it to the church at Jerusalem. It's a monumental thing that we see in chapter 20, verse 4 through 6. But that's not all we see in this passage. We move on to see that Christians, on this journey, Christians were celebrating Christ together. That's our title, Celebrating Christ Together. They were celebrating Christ together on the first day of the week. This is the first time in the scriptures where we have a clear reference to the Christians gathering on the first day of the week. This passage is key to our understanding of Christian worship. Listen to what Matthew Henry says about this passage. Though the disciples read and meditated and prayed and sung apart, and thereby kept up communion with God, yet they came together to worship God, and so kept up their communion with one another. They came together on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day. It is to be religiously observed by all disciples of Christ. In the breaking of the bread, not only the breaking of Christ's body for us, to be sacrifice, a sacrifice for our sins is remembered But the breaking of Christ's body to us to be food and feast for our souls is signified. In the early times, it was the custom to receive the Lord's Supper every Lord's Day 
thus celebrating the memorial of Christ's death, in this assembly Paul preached. The preaching of the gospel ought to go with the sacrament. That's what Matthew Henry says about this passage, and he doesn't stand alone. Christians have prioritized worship together, and they have prioritized the expounding, the explanation of, the God, of God's word. Paul joined with this church in verse 7 on the first day of the week. I, I think it's best understood that we think of it as a Roman accounting. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the Jews saw the day as the sunset to the next sunset. So every sunset started another day. But the Romans, like us, saw the day as midnight to midnight. So at midnight, a new day started, and it went to the next midnight. I think this text is best understood because it's in the Greek world that they met together on the first day of the week, which meant the evening of Sunday, the first day. So Paul joins with them at Troas to do what? Well, to expound, to explain the Word of God. When they were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them. The exposition of the Word of God has always taken center stage in Christ's church. As a matter of fact, when the Roman Catholics began to practice of replacing the Word of God as the center of Christian worship with the bloody mass, the church became weak and even almost died in some places. It was the faithful believer throughout the dark days of our church history that saved us. But under God's grace, the instrumental cause of the continuation of the church was the proclamation of God's word. I'm going to say it again. God preserved his church. But Grace Fellowship, he saved it through the instrument of the preaching of God's word. Any church or any group of churches that replaces the preaching of God's word with anything, even the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, they are in error, grave error. And they could fall away completely. You say, how did the Roman Catholic heresy begin? Well, I would argue it began with taking the word of God out of the hands of God's people and not expounding it clearly to them. That's where it began. When the Bible is taught through exposition, the believer is built up and brought to maturity. This requires the local church to regularly gather to hear the word of God expounded. And the pattern of the Christian community has been to come together on the first day of the week. Why? Because our earliest church fathers gathered on the first day of the week. And we see it in this passage. On the first day of the week, when we... So Luke now has joined him again. I don't know exactly what happened to Luke. Part of the, part of the literature here in Acts... He's speaking as someone who wasn't there, and now he's back. So we know they're together now on their journey. We gather together to break bread. Paul taught, this word means that he reasoned and built arguments with them. He reasoned and built arguments from what? From the Old Testament. He expounded the word of God to them. So here we see that he took the Old Testament and he reasoned with the church. Over the Old Testament, fulfillment in Christ most likely. The gospel, which he was prone to preach everywhere as often as possible. True Christians are to worship God every day. Let me say that again. If you're a Christian, you are to worship God every day. Seven days a week. But there can be no doubt that God's desire and pattern for us is to gather especially on the Lord's day. He laid down that pattern in the first covenant, did he not? In the old covenant, six days and one. And that one was the Sabbath day. What was it based on? It was based, first of all, on the creation. God did all of his work of creation in six days, and on the seventh day he rested. You should also rest, he said to his people, just as the Lord your God rested. This day of rest was instituted by God for the old covenant people on what we would know as Saturday. The seventh day. It spoke to the completion of all God's creative work. Everything had been finished that was needed for creation. And so God rested. Now listen. This is so good. Don't miss this. 
Andrew Peterson wrote a song about it, so it must be good. Christians coming out of the Jewish way of life would have also understood six and one. But rather than meeting on Saturday, which had been the Jewish Sabbath, they began to meet on what? The first day of the week, the Lord's Day. Why? Because we aren't celebrating the rest of the old creation. We are celebrating the resurrection of the new creation, church. We don't wait till one calendar day a year to celebrate our Lord's resurrection. Christians gather together every Sunday, the first day of the week, around the globe. 24 hours straight, people are gathering together, gathering together, and hearing God's word expounded because they honor Christ in this. And it starts right here. What a glorious thing that we can join together to celebrate the resurrection. In the old covenant, they celebrated the rest of God after the physical creation. And in this day, we celebrate the finishing of the work of redemption. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Man, we should get excited about coming and gathering together. Do you get excited about it? I get excited about it. Whether I'm preaching or sitting in the pew, that doesn't matter. What I get excited about is being with God's people on this day. We ought to order our whole lives around this. We ought to set aside other things to take part in this. This is the theater of God that we come to. To hear him speak through his word, clearly communicated and explained that we might grow in maturity and be built up to the edification of the saints. It was necessary that they do this. Now, I want to say something right here, and I want you to bear with me till I finish what I'm about to say. I wrote it down so I would say exactly like I want to say it. You might have noticed I've been doing that a lot lately. There's a lot of people that like that. Some of you don't. Just bear with me. I'll get better at it, hopefully. The early church pattern was to gather together weekly on Sunday, and we carry on this same pattern. Over the past year, many have forsaken the gathering together into a local place because it was safer physically. I'll leave spiritual out right now. I don't think we have an answer to that question yet. Whether it was better spiritually for us not to gather. You know, because here's the thing. God's command is God's command. It's not changed by a pandemic. So it might have been for a time necessary and even good for us to separate from our normal gathering and worship through a device at home. And some of you enjoyed that at the beginning, and then those of you, especially with young kids, loathed it the longer we had to do it. It might have been necessary for a time because the world was facing a pandemic which brought uncertainty and also many sick and many dying. But Grace Fellowship, I want to say to you that while this might have been necessary for a short time, it is important that we realize that the church cannot refrain from meeting together. It cannot. The word church means called out ones, assembly. It is impossible to have an assembly if no one comes together. We must. It's impossible to have church without gathering in one place, to sit under the exposition of the word of God, sing, pray, and take in the sacraments together. Whoever tells you different than that is denying the simple truth of the word of God. God has not called us to be innovative in the way we do church. He's called us to be obedient. And so while we might have done it for a short time, I want to thank you, church. I mean this from the bottom of my heart. Because many of you have been so, most of you, the vast majority of you have been so committed that you have continued to meet together during these hard days as much as is possible. And I want to warn you, if you're here today or if you're listening online, I want to warn you that if you've become lax 
in the pattern of gathering together as a commitment of your life, you need to recommit today to gathering together. The first church and the church through centuries has always persevered in gathering for corporate worship. It's irreplaceable to the health of a Christian that we join together for worship. If you show me a Christian who consistently skips the gathering of the saints together for worship, then I will show you a weak and near to lifeless Christian. The Bible knows nothing of strong Christians who don't join with their brothers and sisters. Think how antithetical that is to what we believe about the gospel. You think you have a resource enough by yourself, cut off from everybody else, that you're so strong that you can stand on your own? May it never be. We need one another. We need one another. And so I'm so thankful for you. And our text is one example of the pattern they had of gathering on Sunday to worship God through the preaching of his word. But that's not all they did. Christian worship includes preaching of the word, but it also includes the sacraments. It also includes the sacraments. Notice that they joined together for the break, to break bread. That's the way Luke puts it. <clears throat> this is the common way that the early church referred to taking the Lord's Supper. Acts 2.42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship to the breaking of bread and prayer. <clears throat> and he went on in that text to describe how they did that. Listen, the first church in Jerusalem, founded at Pentecost, began to meet together weekly I believe immediately, weekly, on Sundays. And they began to worship. Listen, in the porticos of the temple, we're told in history that the Christians, those of the way, joined to hear the word of God preached by their leaders, by the apostles and by the elders. That's why the Romans believed that Christians, and gave them special status, Christians early in the Roman Empire were protected by what? By the agreement that the Romans had with the Jews, that they could worship on the Sabbath. And so we know they joined together at the temple to worship by the preaching and expounding of God's word. And then they left there and they went to each other's homes. And they gathered to hear the further explanation of the word of God as they ate a meal together. And at the end of that meal, they then, the elder, rose up, lifted up the bread and said, This bread is God, Christ's body given for you. And they took it. And this is Christ's blood shed for you. And they took it, and they did this every week. That's the most historical and accurate way I know to describe it. Now, why would they have done that? Well, because when Christian communion was instituted, where was it instituted? By Christ in the upper room at the end of what? The meal. The Seder meal was taken and finished. Communion didn't replace that meal. Communion became the fulfillment of that meal. After it was finished, Christ took the bread and said, This is my body given for you. And he took the cup and said, This is the new covenant in my blood. And they drank it together. Christian communion was started at the end of a meal together. And the most accurate historical understanding of the other churches, they did it together every single week. That's not a Roman Catholic error. The Catholic error is the belief that in some way you are saved by taking in the physical elements because Christ's body is present in those elements. That's why I called it the bloody mass. No, we believe Christ is present spiritually with his people and he joins himself to them and they are joined together through the taking in of his word and the supper. This is what Derek Thomas says about our passage. Listen to this. Now the celebration of the Lord's Supper is not mentioned a great deal in scripture. That in itself is instructive. We shouldn't make too much of it, and it's possible that we make too much of the Lord's Supper, and I think we need to find a proper balance. But, listen, the Reformers especially drew from this particular passage the lesson that the Supper was celebrated after the preaching of the Word. And it, it, it's always been the case among Reformed worship that first we hear the exposition of Scripture, and then there is the celebration of the Lord's Supper, so that... The visible word is explained, first of all, by the preached and expounded word. And then after they've broken bread, celebrated the Lord's Supper, 
they're reminded that in terms of growing to know Christ more and focusing and being reminded of who Christ is and what Christ has done and in anticipation of the feastal meal that you will have with Christ one day in the kingdom, in the presence of the Lamb, the presence of King Jesus. John Stott said this, The disciples met on the Lord's day for the Lord's supper. At least, verse 7, sounds like a description of a normal, regular practice for the church in Troas. Ray Van Ness says this, The breaking of bread is the term used especially in Acts for the celebration of the Lord's Supper. Also, 1 Corinthians 10, 16 and Acts 2, 42. And this passage is of particular interest in providing the first allusion to Christian custom of meeting on the first day of the week for the purpose This passage need not mean the Lord's Supper was the only purpose of their gathering, but it certainly is one prominent purpose and the one emphasized here. The centrality of communion to the weekly gathering is stated casually without explanation or defense, suggesting this practice was common among Luke's readers. He would have expected that they knew that this was the pattern. These early Christians met weekly to celebrate the Lord's Supper. James Hamilton, a Baptist says this, everywhere the apostles went to make disciples, they planted churches. They always baptized new disciples into membership in those churches. Praise God. And those churches met on the first day of the week to celebrate the death and resurrection of Jesus, looking for his return by partaking in the Lord's Supper. So I believe this verse tells us, and Christian history tells us, that they joined together the the first church did, joined together on the first day of the week to preach the word and take the supper. Most of our attitude towards communion or the Lord's Supper is developed on negative teaching, saying what it's not. That's not the wisest practice. We need to spend time saying what communion is. Not by, I think, but not, not, not by just being negative against things. The supper in the New Testament is the remembering Of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord. That's what the supper is. And it is the symbol and seal of the covenant that God has with his people until the day that Christ returns. It's not a secret that some of us at Grace Fellowship would prefer to take the supper every week. You've tolerated us for a long time. Many others don't prefer to take the supper every week. I have no intention of driving a wedge between these two groups and making sides of an issue. But I do want to be clear, and I believe it's the pattern that the first church gave us, that the Christians in the early church heard the preaching of God's word and followed it with the sacrament of the Lord's Supper every week. Now, there's freedom in this for us to take um, less uh, frequent use of the supper. There's freedom. So I don't want to bind anyone. But I do think we need to admit that based on the scriptures and based on church history, that if we choose not to do it every week, we are taking a step back from the pattern that the first church set for us. It's also helpful to think about the supper and how it should be taken. The Lord's Supper should be taken repentantly, prayerfully, gratefully, and joyfully. That's how we should take the supper. J.I. Packer says, at the holy table above all, let there be praise. (laughs) I love J.I. Packer. Tony Morita also gives us encouragement about the supper. He says this, sermons preach to the ear, the Lord's Supper preaches to the eye. And the preached word has great power. In the Lord's Supper, people get to see and hear the gospel proclaimed through the explanation of the elements. We should not minimize this fact. So here is what we see in this text about Christian worship. Christian worship is weekly, it's centered on the preaching of God's word, and it's important that we take the Lord's Supper within our gatherings, and we are emphasizing the greatness of our King when we celebrate Christ together in this way. There's also in this text a great miracle which takes place, and I would be remiss and you would be angry if I didn't talk about it. Eutychus, this young boy, probably 8 to 14 years old, falls asleep during Paul's preaching. Now, many have used this to lecture people about not falling asleep during sermons. Others have used this as a text to say we can preach as long as we want to preach. 
I haven't preached in a couple of weeks. Are y'all willing to stay until midnight? There's a lot that could be said about the text, right? But that's not what this is really about. Luke describes for us a powerful miracle that takes place. This young boy fell out of the window, and this medical doctor, Luke, pronounced that this boy was dead. So you naturalistic viewers of the Bible need to put on your supernatural mind and eyes and see that this guy fell out of the third floor and broke his back and neck and died. That's what happened to him. And just like those who came before him, Paul bends down over this boy. Whether he laid on him or just bent down over him and placed his hands on him. Like Elijah. Like Elisha. Like Jesus. And like Peter. Paul raised this young man back to life. In the presence of all those gathered there. This is a powerful moment in the ministry of Paul that puts his ministry in the same light as Elijah, Elisha, Jesus, Peter, Paul. They're all working through the same power. And what power is that? It's not, except for Jesus, it's not their power, it's whose power? It's Christ's power, God's power working through them. And Paul gets to celebrate with them the, re the resurrection of this young boy back to life. Now, how did he celebrate it? Well, they went back upstairs into the room filled with lamps, and Paul took the supper with them, took in communion. And then what did he do? As any considerate pastor would do, he kept on preaching. We've had events in our church that some of you said, I don't know how you kept preaching when that occurred. So there's one event, if you've been with us very long, you're thinking of it right now. Yes, I have suffered through being shot the bird while preaching uh, in front of the whole congregation. And it did happen, and I did continue to preach. But I just got to say this. A man was raised from the dead, and Paul kept preaching. That's powerful. It speaks to the importance and the prominence of the preaching of God's word. Let's don't miss what God's saying. Paul is saying, this young man has received his life. And then he says, but let me tell you how you live. And he went on another rant, another talk, till dawn. They probably joined together at sunset after their day's labor. They tear it on till midnight. The boy dies. They resurrect him. They take the Lord's Supper, and he tarries on until daybreak. Now, I'm not going to do that. I'm almost done, thankfully. But I do want you to see that this is God affirming what Christians are doing in worship. I believe the reason this miracle is here is to help us see the importance and the prominence of the ministry of God's word to the people. Nothing God is saying can stand in the way, even if one of you falls out dead. Nothing can stand in the way. I will have my word proclaimed. Man, if there is any time, and we always say this, wouldn't you have loved to have been at Mount Sinai to receive Moses's the law and Moses come out. Oh, yeah, that would have been great. All these great times. But this is one of those times as a preacher, I wish I was there. I wish I had seen the way he did handle the Bible. But this is what I would have seen. This is what you would see if you had been there. Just like you see, hopefully, this pulpit every Sunday, you would have seen clear, unadulterated proclaiming of Jesus Christ as Lord of his church from the Scriptures. What we get to take part in, church, is a powerful thing. It is a blessing to be here. And the same spirit that brings power to all Christian preaching when it's simply explaining what God says from his word is present with us today. The same spirit that was present with Paul is present with us. The same spirit that explained and helped Paul explain the scriptures helps the pastors of this church explain the scripture. The same God that speaks through the preaching of his servant then speaks to the preaching of his servants now. You and I get to take part in the grand celebration together of our risen King. And we should be so, so excited. I want to summarize by saying this, that the entire sermon today should encourage us at Grace Fellowship because Grace Fellowship has intentionally chosen to emphasize the gathering on Sunday for the worship of God through the preaching of His Word, singing, prayer, communion, baptism. But the central act is the preaching of God's Word. 
So we are in keeping with this passage. And not only have we done that, but we've also begun an emphasis on home groups. The gathering together around a meal to talk about what God has taught us through his word together and the fellowship. In other words, the first church gathered to hear the word proclaimed and they gathered around the table to talk about the word being proclaimed and take communion. And we here at Grace Fellowship gather to hear God's word preached and we gather in our homes to talk about the word being preached. We are in keeping with the first church. Amen? It's not a dog and pony show. God doesn't grow his church through dogs and pony shows. He doesn't grow his church through campaigns invented by men. He grows his church by the power of his spirit through the preaching of his word to the salvation of the saints and edification and maturity of his people through the preaching and the sacraments that he has instituted. And so all praise is due him and him alone. And that, Grace Fellowship, is why we should be so excited to join here. And you should set aside as much as you can to be here every single Sunday. And you should set aside everything you can to be in home group as much as they meet and gather. We should be together to do this. At Grace Fellowship, we ask that you commit to Sunday worship with the body and the gathering of home groups. This is what we do. And this is what the first church did. So let's encourage one another by continuing these practices until the Lord Jesus comes again. And not only do we hear the word preached this morning, but we get to take the supper. I want to ask our team to come back and we're going to sing a song and the guys are going to go gather up the communion elements and at least for one more month we're going to do communion the way we've been doing it during the pandemic. They're going to pass out the elements of the, of the supper to you and... This is a way of responding. This is a way of being obedient to the scripture. And it's also a way of responding to the, what you've just heard proclaimed to you. The Bible says that Jesus Christ, on the night of the Passover, joined in the upper room with his men. And having them there, he ate with them the meal. And then after the meal, the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it's fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I, I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom come. Come on, guys, and start passing it out. Until the kingdom come. And he took bread, and when he had taken, th he gave thanks, and he broke it, and he said to them, This is my body, which is given for you. These men are passing out the physical elements that symbolize for you the body of Christ, the bread, the wafer. It symbolizes the body of the crucified Christ, which was raised from the dead, so that you might be saved. And then, having eaten the bread, he took the cup, and said, this cup that is poured out for you, this is the new covenant in my blood. So, what are we doing when we take Christian communion? We're not celebrating the Passover. We're celebrating the fulfillment of the Passover. Our Lamb, Jesus Christ, the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world, gave His very flesh, represented to you by the wafer that you have, so that he might take your sin on himself and give you his righteousness, church. And he poured out his blood. Because there can be no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And we don't celebrate a covenant that was sealed with the blood of bulls and goats and rams where it had to be perpetually offered year after year. No, church, we come together and drink the blood of Jesus Christ which is the blood of the new covenant, once and for all given, the covenant fulfilled and ratified in Jesus himself, church. And we come together, when we take it in just a minute, when we drink it down, Jesus says everyone who drinks of the blood will live forever. He says we will live forever, church. So we're celebrating him. And if you don't belong to him, I'm going to ask you to put that thing back in the pew and just set it down. Don't take it in. I don't care if you're a child or if you're an unbeliever, 
And the reason I say that to you is because I love you. Because for you to take these outward symbols and to mimic what the congregation of God's people are doing is blasphemous before God. And he takes it very seriously. And so he has fenced his table. And his table is this communion. And what he says is, if you're not publicly a part of his people, you should not take of this public sacrament. Now, you may be a child. Maybe you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, and we celebrate that. And we want to celebrate it with you publicly. And the way you do that, you tell your mom and dad, I I really, truly believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior. And they will disciple you and bring you to the elders. You make profession of faith to the elders of this church, and we will baptize you publicly to the glory of God. And after that, children, take and eat. You're a member of Christ's family, and you're a member of our family. But if you've not publicly professed your faith in Christ, you can still, you're still a Christian. We don't want to discourage you, but the public taking of the sacrament is after profession has been made. And so we want to distinguish those things. So if you took one and you haven't publicly professed your faith, just doesn't have to be here. Maybe you did it at another location. It's okay. Put it back in the pew. It's no problem at all. Don't be embarrassed at all. If you're here and you don't know Christ as your Savior, put it back in the pew because you need to bow your knee right now where you are. You need to get on your knees before God Almighty and ask Him to save you. And you will take communion with Him for the first time in His Spirit as He regenerates your soul, makes you alive in faith, and you are joined to Him, the vine that lives forever. And the next time you've made perfection, public profession, been baptized, we're going to celebrate you taking the supper with us. So church, if you have those elements in in your hands now, I'm going to ask you to take them. Here we go. He took the body, he took the bread, and he said, this is my body. This is my body, which is given for you. So take and eat of Christ's flesh. See it. See it with your eyes. Taste it between your teeth. Like a worm despised, he was crushed for our transgressions. And yet his father was satisfied when he gave his body as a sacrifice. And now you have in front of you the juice. So church... This is the new covenant in Christ's blood shed for you. If you are his, will you take this blood and drink it down and know that you are part of his family forever? Amen. Amen. Church, let's celebrate together. Let's stand. Let's sing. Let's be joyful in the Lord.